Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. It was, I believe, April of 1993, and I was reading the New York Times, and I came upon a story in the magazine section, I believe, about the Amherst Girls High School basketball team. And I said, well, that's fascinating. And I started reading the piece, and my first reaction was, boy, can this person write. The author, of course, was Madeline Blaze. Maddie Blaze lives in Amherst. She has for some 30 years. The book that came from that piece, In These Girls, Hope is a Muscle, a fabulous book. And I started reading Maddie Blaze's new book, Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble, and I had the same reaction. Boy, can this person write. It is just fabulous. Madeline Blaze, thank you so much for being back with us. We really appreciate your coming to the studio, and we want our listeners to know not only about the book published just before the U.S. Open uh, this past month, but also because Maddie Blaze will be at the Odyssey a week from today, September 26th at 7 o'clock for a book reading, signing, Q&A, discussion, and the like. Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Mar- tennis Legend Alice Marble. Maddie Blaze, why is this story one that resonates? Why does this woman's life resonate today? Well, that's actually, I'd say, a key question, and I thank you for asking it. Uh, when I was researching the book, when I started quite a few years ago, looking into the life of Alice Marble and telling people I was writing this book, the most common question I got was, Alice who? Yeah, people who is had, Alice Marble? <laughs> people had not heard of her, uh, and uh, which suited me fine because I've always been the kind of journalist and writer who likes to explore corners that are not necessarily the center of attention. Uh, and in, in the case of Alice Marble, she reached the height of her fame in the 1930s as a, uh, as a tennis player and then went on to lead a, a long and, and, and very, in many cases, uh, industrious and good life. Uh, but the thing, the thing about her that's most appealing to me and feels most urgent is that she was in so many ways a woman not just ahead of her time, but way, way, way ahead of her time. And I offer, uh, to, as context for that, the recent U.S. Open, which so many of us watched and enjoyed. And as everyone will recall, who got to see those matches and, and games, et cetera, the theme of this year's Open was fair pay, equity, financial equity for women. And uh, also, the motto was tennis is for everyone. Alice Marble almost 80 or 90 years ago, stood for both of those, both of those things, and did so extremely publicly. Uh, she came from a, a, an, I'd say, almost impoverished working class background in San Francisco. No money. Uh, was able to learn how to play tennis because of the ubiquity of, of hard tennis courts throughout California. California believed in democratizing tennis, as opposed to those of us who live on the East Coast where things are often more caste-driven and where uh, many of the, if the tennis was basically a sport for the elite, not for the, not for the working class. But at any rate, because she was able to take advantage of these public courts 
and really embody the, the motto of today's U.S. Open, tennis is for everyone. She spent a great deal of her life trying to make that come true for, for many, many people. She wasn't paid at the height of her fame when she won Wimbledon in 1939 and what we now call the U.S. Open. Uh, two clean sweeps, the first woman to do so. Uh, she was an amateur. Shortly after winning the 1940 Nationals, Wimbledon by then was shut down because of what she called an inconvenient international incident, World War II. <laughs> she, 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 she went pro for one season uh, and played with uh, a woman from England, uh, Mary Hardwick, and two men, uh, Bill Tilden and Don Budge, both extremely legendary male tennis figures. She signed, it was called in the promotional brochure, the Alice Marble uh, Professional Tour. It was basically a pro tour though, and, uh, but they were using her more than anyone else to promote it to the audiences. She was being paid the magnificent sum of $25,000. And when she announced this at a press conference at a hotel suite in New York City, she jumped up on a chair and stood in front of the mirror on, that was on top of a bureau and with lipstick wrote in big, big figures, $25,000. Very excited about this. Well, the tour commenced, and two or three days in, she found out that the men on the tour were getting $75,000. And this is a tour that was at least unofficially named after her. She went to the promoter, and she said, I've found this out. I'm not pleased with this. If you don't pay me what they're being paid, I quit. She got the dough. She got the money. Uh, so she's, as I said, she stood up for this, these, these wonderful principles, at least I consider them wonderful, fair pay and opportunity for all, back when nobody did. But here's the link to today's world. Time passes. Alice Marble fades out of, uh, out of, out of the limelight. Uh, she's no longer playing tennis. She's During the war, she uh, did some promotional speaking, inspirational speaking, which is how she got some kind of income. She also, as part of the war effort, uh, performed at exhibition matches at military bases all over the United States. At one of those matches where she performed, there was a young man watching who looked at her and thought, this woman is a great athlete. He was, he was himself gifted as an athlete, and he could tell that she was great. He was lonely, away from home. He had a newborn daughter, missed his family, got to get through the war. Time passes for him. Time passes for Alice Marble. That little girl grows up to be a, a kind of a, a fierce, somewhat pudgy, awkward, eyeglass-wearing teenager, Billie Jean. Mm -hmm. Billie Jean is learning tennis in California, where Alice Marble has moved back after her time in New York and her time in the limelight. And uh, they, uh, Billie Jean's coach uh, basically suggests that, that Billie Jean study with Alice Marble. And that happens. That happens. That happens. We are speaking with Madeline Blaze. Maddie Blaze's new book is Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble. We were just talking, you were just telling us about her beginning tennis career and then her successes, her work, her performances, and as an amateur, uh, her fight for equal pay. Uh, she was a feminist before 
long before uh, feminism was a word in currency. You mentioned her being in California, and I'm wondering if you would be kind enough to share with us. I'm looking at uh, a paragraph in the chapter titled, Where It Is Always June, and I'm wondering if you'd be kind enough to read that for us. It's just a couple of sentences, but it will give our listeners a sense of what the book sounds like as well as, well, part of the story. In the United States, from early on, tension existed between Eastern and Western tennis. The former was snobby and inbred, limiting rather than welcoming participants, while the latter was freewheeling, and even before Alice Marble's ascendance, produced an array of national champions. California built an abundance of hard courts, which cost less to construct and to maintain than the grass courts favored by private clubs in the East. Hard courts offered another advantage. They could be used year-round, especially in sunny Southern California. A New York sports writer, observing the dominance of Western players, declared, of course they play well out there, where it is always June. <laughs> I would like to know, uh, Maddie Blay, uh, going back to what this book that you've written, Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble, is really about. You mentioned that it's about class. It's also about race. Tell us why. Well, it, it, it is about class. That's We've been talking about that. But the, the racial aspect is actually extremely important. Uh, when Alice Marble retired from tennis, or was forcibly retired, and uh, was reinventing herself, she wrote Quite a, quite a few articles and columns for a magazine called American Lawn Tennis, which was a glossy, well-produced magazine. Stop there for one second, because I didn't, I, I guess I sort of knew this in the back of my mind, but I didn't. American Lawn Tennis. Why was it called Lawn Tennis? I, I presume because at, at the beginning, uh, the grass courts were the, the common playing area, not the hard courts, such as in California. Okay, so I interrupted. Please oh, go on. That's fine. Um, this magazine existed for really one purpose, to promote tennis. And anything that was good for tennis was good for the publisher and editor of the magazine. Uh, during the, uh, before, before World War II uh, and after, actually, if you were a black person in America and you wanted to play tennis, you played in the American Tennis League. You had an alternative league that you played in that mostly uh, played, played matches at historically black colleges and universities because that was a place where the participants and the spectators could get safe housing. It was an alternative alternative to white tennis. It was it, segregated. Segre totally tennis segregated. was segregated. Totally segregated. And Alice Marble basically did not agree with that as a concept, and in 1950, she wrote a column called A Vital Issue, in which she argued that it was high time for tennis, in 1950, two years after baseball, to integrate, and the person that she eyed as the first candidate for, the, for this honor, or for this progressive move, was Althea Gibson, uh, a, an African-American woman who grew up mostly in Harlem, but was originally from the South, daughter of sharecroppers. She argued that Althea Gibson had every right to play, and this editorial, which is so beautifully written and so beautifully argued, that in my ideal school system, 
all high school students would have to read it out loud to publicly to the rest of their classmates because it's before they can graduate because it is about nothing less than fair play. We are speaking with Madeline Blay. Her new book is Queen of the Court. Madeline Blaze, I'm sorry, Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble. She will be at the Odyssey Bookshop a week from today on September 26th. That's Wednesday at 7 o'clock for book reading, signing, and a Q&A. The new book, again, Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble. And we'll be back with more with Maddie Blaze right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Amherst Block Party. Arts, culture, a celebration of downtown businesses. Kung fu, African drums, dancers, jugglers, and acrobats. Yo-yos and youth theater. Games and prizes. Plus, two stages. Continuous live music. Lots of global eats. The Amherst Block Party. Downtown Amherst is one big carnival. Special thanks to Amherst College for their generous sponsorship. Complete details at amherstdowntown.com. Let's do Amherst in style. The Amherst Block Party. This Thursday, 5 to 9. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org slash solar loans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org slash solar loans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Local farms are the lifeblood of our valley, and boy, have they had a tough year. At Northeast Solar, we feel a deep connection to farms. Sustainable agriculture needs sustainable energy, and sustainable energy is our mission. Energy is often the single highest cost for a working farm. By reducing those costs with solar energy, farms can sustain their business, which helps them sustain our communities. Support our local farms. Learn more about Northeast Solar's work with local farms at northeast-solar.com farms. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Madeline Blaze, whose new book is Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble. She will be at the Odyssey Bookshop a week from today, 7 o'clock, September 26th, for a book reading, signing, Q&A, and a discussion. I would like to continue the conversation before we get to a question Buzz raised with you during the break, which I really want to hear the answer to. I, we were talking about racism as an important part of the story and sexism as an important part of the story. And you have examples in the book about how Alice Marble was covered in the press. And I found those fascinating and revealing. And I'm wondering if you might share a couple of sentences. I'm looking at page 59 now and maybe you want to set up what you were writing about and share those sentences with us because I do think they were quite interesting. 
Well, th that's another great question. Thank you, because one of the joys of researching the book was going over many, many old newspaper accounts and seeing how press coverage existed in the old days. It was um, often uh, very well written, uh, sometimes extremely sexist. Uh, but the example that we have here is a, a, a sports writer looking at 16-year-old Alice and giving, 17-year-old Alice at the time actually, giving an assessment of her prowess on the court. And she was obviously taken seriously as a, as a future champion, or the at least as someone who had that possibility. And what the newspaper person had written, was, when, I'll just read a few lines, but it went like this. The girl with the most rounded game for her age is Alice Marble. She seems to have a natural tendency towards a chop, a drive, a lob, and a volley. At least it looks natural. I never saw a girl play her shots with more confidence. There is almost a scornful confidence in the way she conducts herself on the court. And this characteristic, I would say, should be tempered before she will reach her heights. For when she makes errors, she is outraged. And it is only with extreme self-control that she can manage to be careful, subtle, and restrained. She was a good sport, however, after Ruby Bishop beat her in two rows in the finals. Alice said afterward in the dressing room, she was too good for me. All things considered, she was. These uh, paragraph just above that, I wish you would share that. It's the one that starts a couple sentences. Her jubilation faded after she lost in the finals, 6164 to fellow Californian Ruby Bishop. Perhaps you could read that because I think that also gives a sense of how she was described in the press. Maybe you could start with that sentence, humiliated. Humiliated because she felt she was clearly superior, Marble managed to win only five games. The same age as Marble, Ruby Bishop was from Pasadena and headed to college in the fall. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported, quote, Miss Marble, a husky athletic blonde, who was reputed for her burning drives and volcanic service, found herself completely outsmarted by the clever brunette, Miss Bishop. Buzz? Yes, I wanted to ask you, Maddie Blaze. Um, you are, obviously, you're known as a journalist and a uh, professor and a writer. And those skills we're familiar with, but you're also, your interest in female sports. Did you play sports? What, what brought you to being, having such an interest in basketball, tennis, and other women athletes? Ah. Well, the, the quick answer to that is a good story is a good story. Uh, but I would deepen that answer or also add that, that it has been very possible for years and years to ignore women who wanted to be athletes. And I'm always, as I said earlier, attracted to the stories that other people aren't telling. In the case of In These Girls, I think of it as not only a book about girls and being on a team and sports and what that can do to shape a young person and give them confidence to go forward and become a leader in other categories as well. For me, it was also a scouting report, perhaps, on how to raise a daughter. And in, the, in terms of Alice Marble, I believe that part of my impulse to write this book was that I find it really unfair that sometimes really wonderful people are forgotten. And I felt that by trying to uh, engage in this brazen act of biography, which is, after all, a form of resurrection, I would bring her back to the public eye. 
Beyond that, though, the question about my athletic endeavors, which I'm clearly avoiding. <laughs> the honest answer is, uh, I am not an athlete. I've, I, like to, I used to like to run. I like to walk a lot and hike. I swim. I have played a little bit of tennis in my time, inspired partly by the Battle of Sexes, which occurred 50 years ago this week. Talking about Bobby Riggs? Yeah, Bobby Riggs <laughs> and, uh, and Billie, uh, Billie Jean. Jean. Who thankfully won. Yeah. And I should say that when, when uh, Alice Marble won Wimbledon in 1939, the male champ was Bobby Riggs, because all of the, these things all go back to each other. But in terms of my athletic career I, and my uh, glory, I would say it began and ended when I was about 13 or 14, and I entered a contest off the dock of South Beach in Groton Long Point, Connecticut, that consisted of underwater swimming. And I put on, went underwater, swam, finished, appeared to be the winner. I got a blue ribbon. I think I may have been the only person who actually entered. But any dreams of glory did fade when I found out that underwater swimming had actually been a sport at the Olympics at the turn of previous century in the early 1900s, but it was canceled due to lack of spectator enthusiasm. Mm. <laughs> uh, it didn't diminish your blaze of glory. Oh, thank you. It is, it is my, one, my, one, uh, my one moment of uh, true athletic we are speaking. Alice. We are speaking with Maddie Blaze. Madeline Blaze was a reporter for the Miami Herald for years, and she won a Pulitzer Prize. Before she joined the faculty at UMass Amherst in the Department of Journalism, she's the author of some five books. Her new book is Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble. I would like to know, Maddie, what did Alice Marble do after her tennis career? I, you know, athletes have a shelf life. They do, like everybody, if they're lucky, get older, and they can't play their sport forever. What did she do? Because her life continued to matter. Uh, she did a lot of things. She uh, dabbled in fashion. She wrote not just one memoir, but two. She was a commentator. She was, as I said, an inspirational speaker. She also was never afraid to work for a living. And for about eight years, from 19, I'd say, 54 to the early 60s, she worked at a doctor's office in California as a, an office assistant. Her mother had had some training as a nurse, and she wanted to... Uh, she needed, she needed a, a weekly income. She needed to support herself. Uh, later, she moved from there to Palm Desert, uh, which is filled with golf courses and tennis courts. She lived in a very modest apart, uh, little house, and, uh, uh, and she, worked, she also worked to earn a living, including ma uh, being the, the pool person. She managed the pool. She sometimes managed the tennis programs at these various clubs, and she even got a license to be a bartender. She was really famous in her time. Her exploits were covered widely. She was on the cover of Life magazine, which was a big deal. She was covered in the national press. And she is a ripe subject, it seems to me, for kind of a resurrection of her, her life and her accomplishments, a feminist before her time, a fighter for equal rights before her time. There's an interesting aspect of this book I'd like you to tell us about. She wrote these biographies, autobiographies, or these memoirs that you told us about, but she wasn't very accurate necessarily. So how do you, as a journalist, ferret out what she said about herself, some of which was totally accurate, some of which wasn't, 
and write a coherent story about what's true and what's not. Uh, what you're saying is right, that she did uh, confabulate. I think that's the right big word for it. She told some stories about herself as time went on, and they seemed to give her some comfort. So, uh, the, the fantasies that she had, uh, in the, the principal story being that she had been married to a man she always used to say to the press, let's just call him Joe. There was no mention of a marriage in her first memoir, which came out in 46. There was message, there was a, a mention of this fellow named Joe. But as time went on, he wasn't just an acquaintance who died in the war. He was her husband. He died in the war. This is in her imagination, I believe. Uh, and in her grief, she then, in her mind, somehow was able to be recruited to be a spy towards the end of World War II and conduct a very daring mission in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, that put her in harm's way, to say the least, including, she said, being shot in the back as she tried to flee the bad guy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a movie. I should say that Alice Marble loved the movies. When she was a child and had no money, if she found a dime, she got herself to a double feature and watched movies. And so her stories, well, were confabulated, some of them. Some of them. There's, she led a very interesting life of, of which everything that I've said previously can be proven. But she led a shadow life. I guess we all do. But in hers, she had a... Uh, uh, we, ha we all have a shadow life in the sense of what we wish we had done with our lives, or what we thought we could have, what we thought we could be if things had been different. Um, and I guess she must have thought she could have had this wonderful romance, and then when that uh, went away because of the war, when he died in the war, she would revenge his death with this wonderful heroic mission, which, in my opinion, never occurred. However, I have made it clear if any readers of this book can instruct me to the contrary, I welcome being told it was true. Mm. The book is Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble, among other stories, all of the famous person she knew and, and, and uh, spent time with, the Hearsts. I mean, it's just a fascinating history, as well as a extraordinary uh, biography of Queen. And I just want to say, Bill, based on this conversation, as much of a storyteller as you are, Maddie, uh, in your writing, you're a great storyteller orally, so thank you. Wow, thank you. I'll take that as a big compliment. Thank you. Maddie Blaze is author of Queen of the Court, The Many Lives of Tennis Legend Alice Marble. She will be at the Odyssey on Wednesday, September 26th at 7 o'clock for book reading, signing a Q&A. Thank you so much for thank being you. with us today, Maddie, and thank you for this book. Thank you so much. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
Testimony in the murder trial of Kara Rintala in Hampshire Superior Court is continuing today with Trooper David Swan and Detective Lieutenant Robin Whitney taking the stand. Yesterday, jurors heard testimony of numerous 911 calls and arguments between the couple. This is the fourth murder trial for Rintala, who is accused of killing her wife, Anna Marie Cochran Rintala, in their house in Granby in 2010. Two people were injured following a crash in Hadley on Sunday. The accident happened on Mill Valley Road around 4.43. Hadley police responded to a report of two pedestrians that were struck by a vehicle. The driver stayed at the scene until police arrived. The married couple from Chicopee were hit as they were crossing the street from Maple Valley Creamery and taken to Bay State Medical Center for serious injuries. It is believed the driver, a 27-year-old man from Chicopee, was distracted at the time of the crash, according to witnesses. The Greenfield Zoning Board of Appeals has approved a special permit for an indoor marijuana cultivation facility and retail location on Laurel Street. To control odors from the cultivation site, co-owner Richard Ferrara said rooms will have full carbon filtration systems. The Deerfield Planning Board is seeking to update the official zoning map along with some definitions and special permit sections. The proposed changes include adding electric vehicle parking requirements and changing hotels and commercial recreation from by right use to requiring a special permit in the Tourism Overlay District. There will be a public hearing at 6 p.m. on Monday, October 2nd at the Deerfield Municipal Town Offices. Partly to mostly sunny today, breezy, a high of 68 to 72. Evening temperatures will be in the 50s and 60s under clear skies tonight, eventually an overnight low of 46 to 52. Sunny tomorrow, probably the brightest day of the week, a high of 72 to 76. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg returns to the UMass campus with his guitar in one hand and a copy of his new book in the other. The UMass Amherst Libraries and the UMass Fine Arts Center present Words and Music, an evening with singer-songwriter and author Stephen Kellogg, Friday, December 22nd at Bowker Auditorium. With his roots-rocking songs and friendly, engaging stage manner, Stephen Kellogg has lit up audiences from coast to coast. In this very special evening at UMass, he'll discuss themes in his new book, Objects in the Mirror, Thoughts on a Perfect Life from an Imperfect Person. He might tell some jokes. He'll definitely play some favorite songs. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Call it a kind of homecoming. Words and Music, an evening with singer-songwriter, author, and UMass alum, Stephen Kellogg. Friday, September 22nd, Bowker Auditorium at UMass Amherst. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. The bedazzling Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival returns to the beautiful village of Deerfield, September 23rd and 24th. Brighten your home or wardrobe. Choose from stunning yet affordable works by over 100 artisans, including a wonderful trove of gold and silver jewelry. But don't just take my word for it. Get the details at deerfield-craft.org. Celebrate a bright new fall season. Admission $5, children 12 and under free.
is the comedy quiz, and it seems to be our day for Maddie. So, Maddie Benjamin, the microphone is yours. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm happy to be the second Maddie on air this morning. And welcome to the Happier Valley Comedy Comedy Quiz Show. I am Maddie Benjamin. I'm the program manager and facilitator of fun at the Happier Valley Comedy Theater and monthly nerd in residence. And I'm here to ask a few funny people to answer questions on a subject they know nothing about. Uh, today, I am joined by our guest panelists, uh, Dave Ruderman. Dave is a longtime Amherst resident by way of New York City. He works at UMass and is currently a performer with the Happier Valley Comedy Championship Show, which you can catch this Saturday night at 7 p.m. I'm also joined by Scott Braidman, the artistic director at Happier Valley Comedy, and we're playing with WHMP's own Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's Good us. Morning. <laughs> so nice to be here with you. And this month on the Comedy Quiz, I have prepared a quiz on uh, snack food. How's everybody feeling about uh, learning not, about tasty snack food this morning? It's not snack food. It's junk food, and this is round two. Come on, let's go. Let's, <laughs> the honest comedy quiz. Let's okay, go. Okay, it's junk food round two, so I'm recycling questions. You haven't heard them, though. Uh, I've Maddie, just already written them. I'd prefer if all your questions were about carrot sticks and celery <laughs> and maybe a light hummus. Go back to the co-op. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe nuts. Well, um, we're going to skip right over that And we're going to jump right into A question about the healthiest restaurant Around McDonald's Uh, So this first round of questions Is going to be multiple choice Our uh, panelists will uh, buzz in By saying their names Uh, Buzz will buzz by saying buzz, I guess. Uh, no and, fair. <laughs> um, and we'll give everybody a chance to weigh in. So if you're playing along at home, uh, let's see how you do against our panelists. Everybody ready for question one? Ready. ready. Yep. All right. Uh, question one is, who was the original McDonald's mascot? Was it A, the Hamburglar, B, Mayor McCheese, C, Speedy or D, Ronald McDonald? Dave says, can I, can I just buzz in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave, what, what do you got for us? Oh, it's definitely Speedy. Speedy. Speedy, speedy yeah. Speedy, like Speedy Alka-Seltzer Speedy? Yeah. Right. It's because if you eat McDonald's, you need speedy Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> That's a hell of an advertising <laughs> gig. It, yeah, it precursored the uh, whole Alka-Seltzer uh, explosion. You know? Nah, <laughs> nah, that can't be. Okay, what do the, what, what the other panelists say? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Mayor McCheese because I do have a microphone in front of me, and that's a good time to say Mayor McCheese. (laughs) And I am going with Mayor McCheese because I don't want to agree with Dave when he used the word precursored. Mm. (laughs) Well, uh, maybe you should have. Because oh. Dave was actually correct, and Speedy. Speedy is like a weird little dude with a cap. Uh, yeah, he did not stick around very long, but if you were going to get a Speedy hamburger, get it from Speedy at McDonald's. Yeah, I, I uh, met Croc, you know. So. 
<laughs> <laughs> Who's Croc? Croc's the guy who founded McDonald's. Oh. No, I didn't. And Dave, <laughs> Dave met him when there were over 50 hamburgers yes. sold. Oh. <laughs> At least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, cool. My next question is also about a, uh, a fast food mascot. This one's a little weirder. Um, the Noid was a commercial character clad in a red, skin-tight, rabbit-eared bodysuit. And he was a short-lived, antagonistic character who was intent on destroying the food products from what fast food chain? How do you spell Noid? N-O-I-D. I I was afraid of that. The Noid. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Was the Noid trying to destroy uh, Domino's Pizza, uh, Taco Bell Tacos, Burger King Whoppers, uh, or Sonic Hamburgers? Scott, I think it's Domino's Pizza. And if I'm wrong, I'll be annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) This is a time when we remind our viewers that we are not going to ask you for any contributions to this. It's totally free. Okay, moving on. Oh, Dave. Uh, Let's see. All right. I remember the commercial. Avoid the Noid. It was like low, basic thing. And I never eat any of this stuff. So, uh, but I'm going with Domino's as well since... It's one of the things I've eaten even less than anything available on a highway. <laughs> okay, he eats it less than roadkill. Uh, congratulations, that's terrific. Okay, Buzz, you want to get in on this? I will join these noids, um, and I'm going to say Domino's as well. Wow, well, look at this trio of noids we got. They all got it correct. Yeah, avoid the noid. He he was intent on uh, sabotaging uh, Domino's 30-minute pizza delivery guarantee. So even if you didn't eat it, Dave, you got it correct. Yeah, and I used to hang out with Fats Domino's. So. <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, maybe. You, right. you, Fats Domino, and Mr. Croc. Got it. Okay. <laughs> what a party. Uh, all right. Moving away from uh, fast food um, and a little bit closer to uh, the modern day. Uh, so this beverage brand went viral in 2020 uh, when a TikTok user uploaded a video of himself swigging directly from the bottle while skateboarding and listening to Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> what beverage suddenly had a, a, a mo- its moment in the sun? Vodka. Uh, <laughs> was it A, Sunny Delight? Was it B, Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice? Was it C, Tropicana Orange Juice? Or was it D, Snapple? <laughs> This is Buzz, and I'm going to say Sunny Delight only because I haven't heard of anything since 2020, and I never heard of Snap- uh, Sunny Delight. So there you go. Oh. oh, well, that gives me my answer. I'm going to go with Sunny Delight. <laughs> sunny and- D, it's better than purple stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to also go with Sunny Delight. Oh. I, I want to go with Snapple because they were cool. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh- Dan, what do you? We, additional B. contestants. Everyone B. wants in on this question. <laughs> I can't B. believe it. Dan said cranberry. Uh, cranberry. Yeah. What'd you say? 
B. Well, B. well, coming in from uh, off mic, Dan is correct. Oh. It was ocean spray cranberry juice. I think it was cran grape, to be specific. Um, but the TikTok user uh, 420 dogface 208 uh, went massively viral uh, and I think got some sponsorship deals for riding his longboard and uh, drinking sunny, uh, drinking uh, ocean spray cran-, cran grape right from the bottle. Well, I need to mention here, because uh, Dave just got this one wrong. It was the first one you got wrong today, Dave. I want to mention that when your wife, Holly, came on, oh, she swept the show. So okay. you you have just placed behind your lovely spouse. He's beating you by a lot. Yeah, no, no, no. It's not about me. No, yeah. I, I heard she demolished you all. When when Dave leaves, he doesn't need to go home and share a house with Scott. Yeah. He does need Although to share a house Although it could be cool. It could be Holly. cool. Rent's high. I do anything. I don't know. I know. She she gets to welcome home her own Noid. Mm. <laughs> and they and they have a, a refrigerator full of orange delight. It's really amazing. Sunny. Sunny, sunny, sunny delight. <laughs> There's no orange in it. No. <laughs> it has never met an orange. No. Orange flavor. All right. So uh, we have another multiple choice question here. And this one is going to be um, uh, a, a tell me which one, which uh, answer does not fall into this category. So I'm going to give you three food brands with people names, and you're going to tell me which of them is not a real person. Okay? Uh, so the three brands are Dr. Pepper, Marie Callender, and Betty Crocker. Which of these figures... I'm sorry. I, I made that more confusing than it had to be. Um, <laughs> which of these three characters is a real person? Two of them are fake. Ah. One of them is a real person. Oh, I'm, I'm, this is Scott. I'm fairly sure that Dr. Pepper is a real person. And he's actually my PCP. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone asks. I'm pretty sure that Betty Crocker is a real person because that's all my mother fed us. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that Marie Callender is a real person. Whoa. Because I have a calendar at home with her name on it. <laughs> These are some of the saddest answers I've ever heard. Well, no matter how sad it is, Dave is correct. Oh! Marie Callender is a real person. Betty, I don't, you know, I, I don't want this to upset you, Buzz, I'm so though. Upset. But Betty Crocker was a, a made up character who used to write back to people who wrote in with baking questions. But she wasn't real. She was the product of an ad campaign. I don't know which emotion is accurate. Is that, does that make me really, really sad, or do I hate Dave more? Mm. I'm trying to figure it it's out. It's okay to have multiple mo- emotions at okay. the same time. Then I hate Dave, and I'm really sad. Maddie, <laughs> Maddie, who's the guy I've been seeing every six months and giving a $45 copay to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, where, where are you meeting him? In, in Dr. Pepper Alley. <laughs> you better check your Marie calendar. <laughs> uh, all right. I think that we have time for one more question before we go into our first break. Um, and this one is not going to be a multiple choice. So this is going to be our first open response question. Um, So also looking back to childhood uh, and a childhood favorite, the chocolate chip cookie. 
where was the chocolate chip cookie invented? I think it was clearly in Betty Crocker's kitchen. Yes, Bill. <laughs> yes, Bill. That's why we're a team, Bill. Uh, I, I have an idea. Oh, go for it. I believe it was in the Toll House Inn in Massachusetts. <laughs> Whatever. Wherever that is in Massachusetts. No, you're Toll. all wrong. It was not indoors. It was outdoors, outside, in a field. Mrs. Field. <laughs> Oh. 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 Well, I think it was. <laughs> I think it was in the the National Biscuit Company, Nabisco, mm -hmm. in a treehouse with a bunch of little elves that it was invented. My well, God, I don't it, know it, what kind of cookies you people are eating. And we're gonna take. <laughs> we're officially gonna take away the points you had for those answers. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if, the, if Mrs. Field is next to Dr. Pepper Alley, uh, <laughs> but the correct answer actually is the Toll House Restaurant in oh, Whitman, Massachusetts. Steve Ruderman with Dave some Ruderman. real knowledge. Do you know anything important? <laughs> I, I know many things that are unimportant <laughs> and people who are unimportant. <laughs> Oh dear, while we're still all talking to each other, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with more with the comedy quiz right after this. Wow, Toll House. Well done, man. No, it's great. I'm Angie McVeigh, residential loan underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo. So there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from JCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or in any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th. Be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan. Subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our monthly comedy, comedy, comedy quiz with Maddie Benjamin as our interlocutor. Ooh, Ooh. a new title. <laughs> I like it. Uh, thank you, Bill. And uh, we are back with the comedy quiz where I am joined with HBC uh, performer Dave Ruderman and uh, Scott Braidman, the artistic director, as well as Buzz, who is playing along valiantly. And how do our scores look right now, Bill? Well, how to put it this way, Buzz is minus one, Scott is minus two, and Dave Ruderman has about 20 points. Wow. <laughs> Roughly. I haven't asked 20 questions, so the point system is just getting <laughs> out of hand these days. <laughs> we include my wife's questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Marriage has its perks. <laughs> All right, well, let's see if uh, Buzz and Scott can crawl their way out of the hole uh, with some open response questions. I'm going to keep going in the other direction. <laughs> just keep digging. Stay out of the hole. Stay out of the hole. <laughs> All right. Uh, in Steven Spielberg's classic E.T., 
Elliot lures the shy E.T. out of its hiding place Scott, using Reese's what pieces. candy? <laughs> Woof, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know we were going to get movie questions. I'm here. I'm ready. Are For those sure? just joining us, this is the uh, second round of the junk food questions. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Uh, does any does anybody else have anything to add to that? I'm, I'm in a hole. I might as well say carrot sticks and celery <laughs> sticks. Carrot, Scott, are you sure? Oh, I'm pretty sure. Are you sure they weren't Skittles? I'm pretty sure they were Reese's Pieces. M&M's? Um, what if you mix them all together? I'm pretty sure they were Reese's Pieces. And if you ask about the junk food in Beetlejuice, it was a Zagnut bar. Is that, that, is the, that next the next question? question? <laughs> no, no one was going to ask about a Zagnut oh. bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've been convinced. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> convinced of what, Dave? Reese's Pieces or go home. Well, Th- those sounds you hear in the background are Snickers. <laughs> well, I may have been rudely interrupted. <laughs> Wait a minute. But the correct answer was, in fact, Reese's Pieces. That's the only movie question of the evening, of, of the morning. Right. I'm going to phone home. <laughs> All right. So the next question in our junk food quiz show is, uh, in spite of its rumored infinite shelf life, what baked snack food will actually only stay fresh for about 45 days? Scott, Twinkie. <laughs> yeah. that, was a sh- that was a showstopper. I thought that Twinkies stayed forever, forever fresh. As far as taste goes, forever. As far as bacteria goes, forever. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's Twinkies for sure. Uh, you know what? Oh. Scott has left me speechless. <laughs> you don't want to say carrot sticks, bus? <laughs> I'm done with carrot sticks forever. What about devil dogs? I don't even know what they are. Uh, what about zebra, devil, zebra devil, cakes? Devil dogs are sign of high-class Twinkies, uh, but are chocolatey. Yeah. A high-class Twinkie. <laughs> well, a uh, surprise. The answer is Zagnut Bar. No, ah! it's not. It's not. It's not. <laughs> the answer is a Twinkie. Oh. <laughs> Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, what's our score look right look like right now, Bill? Dave Don't Ruderman. say it. Dave Ruderman has 174, and everybody else, well, you guys are back up to zero. Congratulations. Oh, excellent. Well, let's see if you can redeem yourselves uh, in the next minute or so. I'm going to read you some snack food taglines, and the first person to buzz in with the right food will get a point. You ready, Bill? (laughs) Yes, I'm ready. All right, excellent. Uh, All right, the snack that smiles back. Oh. uh, uh, Smiles. (laughs) Oh gosh, I think I feel like I know it, but I don't. Oh, Twizzler. Uh, wax Halloween teeth. Uh, <laughs> the answer is goldfish. Everybody uh, missed that one. Uh, once you pop, the fun don't stop. Pringles. That's a point for Scott. Uh, give me a break. Kit Kat. That's another point for Scott. Uh, taste the rainbow. Skittles. That's another <laughs> point for Uh-oh. Scott. All right, uh, they're great. Frosted Flakes. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Valiant effort from Dave, but that's another right, point right, right. for Scott. Uh, what What is Milk's favorite cookie? Betty Cracker. Uh, Oreos. <laughs> yeah, oh, Dave Oreos, got one point. Yes. Excellent. And that takes our totals to... Well, I... I want to note, Scott Bredman got an amazing comeback. He has 177 <laughs> points. And because this is an egalitarian kind of show, so did Dave Ruderman. 177 to 177 to... Give, bu- give to, Buzz 177 to... Come on. <laughs> to 176. Uh. <laughs> well, Bill may have lost all scoring uh, rights for, from here on out, but thank you so much for playing along with us at the Have Your Valley Comedy Comedy Quiz Show. And if you need more laughter in your life, we have shows every Saturday night, including this coming Saturday when you can see uh, Dave Ruderman perform with our Happier Valley wow. Comedy Channel champion show cast uh and scott might be there uh directing things too but we know you want to see the winner dave (laughs) so thanks everybody for playing uh and we will see you back next month on the happy valley comedy comedy quiz show i got such a bad case of the munchies (laughs) (laughs) everybody grab a snack and we'll see you later (laughs) thank you maddie benjamin This is talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg on whmp In 2022, Whole Children moved its campus to Northampton. Continuing the programming we've offered since 2004 for children and teens of all abilities, including developmental and intellectual disabilities, as well as those with autism. After school and Saturday classes for this session run from October 3rd to December 9th. Take a look at the classes we have. Yoga. Chorus. Cooking. Dance movement. A video game. Come take a tour. Wholechildren.org. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And this is our monthly segment that we all just look forward to. It's important, it's entertaining, it's interesting. It's uh, our Feminist Future segment with uh, Smith College professor and uh, Ms. Magazine editor, Carrie Baker. Carrie, hello again. Hi, it's great to be here, Buzz. Thanks so much. So welcome to Feminist Futures, Northampton's radio show that gives a platform to cool feminists living in the valley um, who are working to advance the rights of women and gender minorities here across the state, the country, and the world. So today is the publication day of a new book called 50 Years of Ms., the best of the pathfinding magazine that ignited a revolution. So this is a coffee table book with lots of wonderful full-page color photos of Ms. Magazine covers, of archival materials, of the best articles from the last 50 years. And it is on 
the uh, it is for sale today. I really encourage folks to get it. It was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times Book Review this weekend to rave reviews. So I am thrilled today to have with us here a former uh, Ms. Magazine writer and editor, uh, Barbara Finlan, who lives right here in Western Massachusetts. And she is... Um, for the last 10 years, she's actually been the features editor at Women's Media Center, which is actually also founded by Gloria Steinem, as, as was Ms. Magazine. And the Women's Media Center conducts research on and advocates for the visibility of women and girls in the media. So I'm thrilled to have you here today, Barbara. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk to you about, um, Ms. was founded in 1972, over 50 years ago, and you worked there in the 1990s. Did you ever think that Ms. would be 50 years old? <laughs> that is such a good question. And I think, no, I, back then I thought that at some point our work would be done. Yeah. Hmm. And I think I thought that about all kinds of feminist institutions and endeavors yeah. that our work would be done and there would be no need for it anymore. And um, now I see, you know, how terribly naive that was, but no, I never envisioned this day. But now I see that uh, institutions like Ms. and Women's Media Center and other feminist entities are more necessary than ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. When did you first encounter Ms. Magazine and what, what did it mean to you? Well, my family subscribed to Ms. when I was a child. Oh, I love it. You yeah. had a feminist mother. So Yeah, <laughs> and father. And father, yeah. yeah. And so I was probably 10 or 11 when we started subscribing and probably too young to be really reading it, but it was there in the house and I did eventually start reading it. And Ms. really provided me as a uh, young feminist, really, um, information on what was going on out there in the movement, the idea that there, you know, remember, there was no internet back then. Yeah. The idea that there was this big movement going on out there and lots of different things happening in lots of different places. It also provided frameworks for thinking about things. And as I was out there in the world as a young person, um, kind of frameworks for encountering and arguing points and, and advocating for feminism out there in the world. So I'd say it was pretty formative, yeah. even in my younger days before I ever thought about working there. Interesting. There's so many stories of people for whom they lived in maybe a rural area and didn't know there were any other feminists in the world, but they would subscribe to Ms. as a sort of lifeline to make them feel like they weren't quite so alone and that they weren't crazy, that actually a lot of people were thinking these things and questioning society. One of Ms.'s first books, it might have been Ms.'s first book, was a collection of letters to Ms. Yes. And it really reflected those experiences yeah. of um, people who really felt isolated where they were, in whether it was geographically or culturally. Yeah. And Ms. was a lifeline. Yeah. By the people. way, Smith College has the papers, the archives of Ms. Magazine, especially those early day papers. And mm -hmm. there, there's tons of letters, and they're yeah. fascinating to go and read. And the Smith College archives are open to anybody. They can, you can just go into our new Nielsen library up to the third floor and ask for those collections. It's fascinating. For this book, I was charged with going through and finding some juicy archival 
items to go into the book. And it was so fun because I and a few of my research assistants sort of delved into the archives. And of course, they could only include a few, but there are some original copies of letters and certainly photographs of the office in the old days with Gloria, of course, looking so fashionable. And so, well, um, so we're here with Barbara Finland, who worked at Ms. Magazine in the 90s. What was it like to work there in the 90s? Well, the 90s were kind of a wild time politically and for feminism. Yeah. Um, you think about uh, the Clarence Thomas hearings right. were in 1991, right. okay, and the sort of uh, just rage that was inspired by that experience, um, if you recall, that was followed by the so-called Year of the Woman when yes. five women senators were elected for the first time, <laughs> and that was supposed to be a real uh, turning point for women in politics in this country. The decade ended up uh, being a little bit more of a mixed experience in that there was a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of progress in terms of feminism, and then a lot of backlash in pop culture. There was a, quite a mix of like images of empowered women and images of real in real marginalization of women. Yeah. So it was really complicated. Yeah. Um, the magazine at the beginning of the '90s uh, underwent a tremendous change. It had been under the same ownership for since the beginning from the early 70s until the late 80s. And then it changed ownership a few times and landed in the early 90s with a new ownership and a new ad-free format. That was a great shift. It I was a great that. shift because particularly with Ms., advertising was always a source of a lot of um, conflict because advertisers made demands editorial demands of women's magazines that, by the way, they were not making of general interest magazines yeah. that were contrary to what Mrs. content was. So we went ad-free. That freed us up editorially tremendously. Um, and also in the 90s, we had two incredible powerhouse editors-in-chief, Robin Morgan, wow. the legendary yes. feminist, activist, writer, poet, and a co-founder of the Women's Media Center. And a co-founder of the Women's Media Fonda, Center. And Jane Fonda, right. Absolutely, yes. And then later, uh, Marsha Gillespie, who yeah. was a real magazine uh, presence and had been editor-in-chief of Essence and was the first and only black editor-in-chief of Ms. And under both of these women, we had a staff that was just diverse and dedicated and brilliant at understanding the role of Ms. as a media entity in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Ms. Today is owned by Feminist Majority, mm -hmm. and it is still ad-free. Mm -hmm. It comes out four times a year, but then they have a very vibrant online website where they post content every day covering all the latest issues. And a lot of the writers for Ms. are now scholars, feminist scholars. So I actually chair the Ms. Committee of Scholars, which is a group of over 40 scholars from across the country that write for the magazine and advise the magazine on its content. And so it is still a nonprofit. It is still a movement magazine that is doing the work of the women's movement. Absolutely. And Carrie, Carrie Baker, is it still ad-free, as Barbara Findlin was just Absolutely. saying? Absolutely. 
yeah, it's still ad-free. So, and it, I think it's on the newsstands at Broadside here in town. You can also subscribe, um, and it's it's well worth it. You actually join Ms. You don't subscribe to Ms. So you're a Ms. partner, and I'm always trying to encourage people to do that. So. Barbara, um, can you tell me some of the examples of the work Ms. has done that uh, were not on the radar of mainstream media, but that was really important and groundbreaking? Ms. was uniquely positioned to uh, cover stories that were not being covered by the mainstream media and also give perspective on kind of stories that were getting attention but maybe not being covered properly or fairly. But uh, Ms had the first national cover stories on domestic violence and on sexual harassment. Um, Ms. in the 70s and also 80s and also beyond, um, mm -hmm. but really did a lot of coverage of what were then taboo topics, just having to do with, uh, well, certainly abortion, women's sexuality, menopause, and any other things that had to do with women's health or women's bodies would never be discussed in mainstream media. Right. And Ms. really broke a lot of ground with that. I was recently observing with some colleagues at Women's Media Center that you see in mainstream media now, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Time Magazine, stories routinely about menopause, abortion, um, women's sexuality, um, LGBTQ issues and lives. And that is, that's mainstream stuff now. Yeah. And it's important to realize that that that's partly to do with the fact that there are a lot more women in jobs in media now who yes. are saying these are this, these are parts of our lives that need to be covered. It's also partly because entities like Ms. broke ground and, and broke silence on these issues. Absolutely. And, and they did international coverage also. Didn't they have one of the earliest pieces on the Taliban? Yes, absolutely. That was an important thing. Another important thing that happened during the 90s was we and this had a lot to do with Robin Morgan's perspective coming in as editor-in-chief, greatly expanded international coverage and feminist movements that existed in countries all over the world that U.S. audiences really hadn't had access to, um, and including, yes, that early coverage of the Taliban, which was a seen as kind of a fringe movement that would never come to power, um, but we were doing early coverage of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And today, about half the print magazine is international. A lot of the online content is international. We have contacts all around the world that are covering, you know, women's movements and resistance to the growing fascist threat in many countries around the world, which often targets women first. Yes, absolutely. We are going to take a break, but before we do, there is an event that's coming up, Carrie Baker, and maybe you and and Barbara and or Barbara Finland of the Women's Media Center can tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So at Smith College, a week from Thursday on September 28th, we have a afternoon-long celebration of 50 years of Ms. It starts with a archives tour in Nielsen Library between 1.30 and 3.30, and then there's a panel discussion at 4.30 to 6 in Weinstein Auditorium and a reception afterwards um, in the Poetry Center. And if you register in advance and come, you will get a free book 
a free 50 Years of Ms. book, which is a $50 value. And uh, you can register um, by following um, a tinyurl.com backslash 50 Years of Ms. So it's open to the public. We hope to see you. Is there a cost? There's no cost. It's free. You get a free book? Free book and a, a free great entrance. panel. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a, re- a really incredible event. And, and by the way, I just want to also say Odyssey Bookshop is also having a book talk um, on the night before. That would be Wednesday, the 27th. I think it's at 7 o'clock maybe. I'm not sure, but check. But they are also having a book talk that's open to the public. No free book, though. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm laughing. It really does sound incredible. Ms. Magazine has had a profound impact, not just on society, not just on our culture, but on each of us. We're going to be right back, continue our conversation with Media Center, Women's Media Center, uh, Barbara uh, Finland, and with Carrie Baker, Professor at Smith, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Doing business in Amherst since 1968. Woman-owned since 2017. Summerlin Floors does it all. Hardwood, carpet, porcelain tile, natural stone. Have you considered radiant floor heating? We're sales. We're design. We're installation. Our team at Summerlin Floors has been in the flooring business for over 50 years. People are pleasantly refreshed by the experience they get here compared to some of the, we'll say, bigger options in town. The Amherst Block Party, arts, culture, a celebration of downtown businesses, kung fu, African drums, dancers, jugglers, and acrobats, yo-yos and youth theater, games and prizes, plus two stages, continuous live music, lots of global eats. The Amherst Block Party, downtown Amherst is one big carnival. Special thanks to Amherst College for their generous sponsorship. Complete details at amherstdowntown.com. Let's do Amherst in style. The Amherst Block Party, this Thursday, 5 to 9. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, back to school, better. Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Feminist Futures with Smith College professor Carrie Baker and with Women's Media Center's features editor, Barbara Findlin. 
right. Well, um, so Barbara, Gloria Steinem obviously founded Ms. Magazine, but she later founded the Women's Media Center along with Robin Morgan, a former Ms. editor, and Jane Fonda of Hollywood fame. Can you talk a little bit about what the media, Women's Media Center is? Yes, we, we talk about the Women's Media Center's mission as being raising the visibility, viability, and decision-making power of women and girls in media. So that speaks to both women in media. It's really important for there to be women's voices behind the camera, in front of the camera, um, in newspapers, in legacy media, online, um, to just have a more fair uh, media. Mm-hmm. And also the sort of portrayal and images of women in the media. And there's a relationship between those two things. Right. As we talked about earlier, the, the mainstreaming of certain topics in mainstream media has everything to do with increasing numbers of women in power and, um, and in uh, expressing their voices in media. Yeah. Uh, so some of the programs that we do, uh, we, we, do, we do a tremendous amount of work on researching uh, women in the media. So we, every year we do a report on the Emmys and the Oscars, and we literally count nominees that for every non-acting category and say how many women, how many men. And over years, we've clearly identified certain fields where women have been all but shut out of... um, say, Oscar recognition, which also is an indicator of their being shut out of certain jobs, cinematography, for example. Right. Um, So research on Oscars, Emmys. We've done a couple of research reports uh, chronicling the numbers of women of color in media, in positions of power, and in decision-making roles. Right. And so these research reports are really to identify what is the landscape in media for women, and where are the areas where media companies and media entities need to do better? Right. And you really need that as a baseline to talk about what the problems are. I use your research in my classes when I'm teaching about media, and I remember a study you did a few years ago where you tracked who were the people writing the bylines about reproductive rights and being interviewed, both in articles, but also like on the Sunday talk shows. And it was the vast majority of people writing and being interviewed about reproductive rights were men. Exactly. And it was so shocking to me in this day and age that still men are the ones that are, you know, put forward as the voices that we need to listen to about reproductive rights. There's such a long history of that in in our country where men are not only making the decisions, but they're the only voices that or most of the voices that we're hearing. Yes, exactly. And you have to look at that and research it and know what the facts are in order to be able to make the case yeah. that something needs to improve. Yeah. Um, so we do all of this research. We also have programs that are designed to make change in media. Mm-hmm. We have a big, vast database of women experts called SheSource. I'm a SheSource source. <laughs> and you are a SheSource source. That's yeah. right. And that is mainly for journalists. Um who in the past have really been able to say, well, they go to sources that are familiar to them. And the most visible sources 
experts on topics tend to be white men established in certain fields. So we have created this vast database of women experts on all kinds of um, topics for journalists to use to have a more diverse uh, base of sources. That's important, too. Absolutely. Where is the Women's Media Center located? Is it in New York? It's in D.C. It's in D.C., right. So tell me about your role there as features editor. They have their own kind of publication. right? Right. So that's the other main arm of what we do is we try to model what we want to see in media by having several channels of content on our website. Uh, My role is features editor. So on a weekly basis, I edit news and feature stories. And the mission is not that different from what we talked about with Ms. And I think it's, that's the mission of feminist media. It's covering stories that are not, that are of interest uh, to, that are of interest to women or that have a gender lens that are not being covered by mainstream media, giving a perspective on larger stories that are being covered by mainstream media, but the perspective isn't there. Offering diverse sources in your coverage. And that's an important part of what we do too. Absolutely. Yeah. At Ms. Magazine, I'm a regular writer for Ms. Magazine now. And you know, often the stories I write are when I read the way that things are getting talked about. And I'm like, but this is missing. This perspective is missing. Or, and, and a lot of times I'll pitch things to mainstream media and they'll be like, no, 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 we don't want that. And Ms. will love it because it's, it's ahead of mainstream media. Mainstream media is a little more conservative. And so, and then the goal of Ms. is to get mainstream media to follow. And they often do. When Ms. starts publishing, often it's uncanny how many times I'll publish thing, something in Ms. and it'll show up in the New York Times like uh, several months later or a year later. And sometimes I've even pitched that story to them. And they, it wasn't, you know, they didn't want to do it then, but. Yeah, perfect case in point. That, yeah. That's, a, that's exactly what happens. It's yeah. a good example. Ex- yeah, exactly. I was covering that years ago and right. now they're all on it, which right. is great. I'm glad for that. Right. And that's part of, that's part of the process. And that's part of what we're doing too is, like I said, kind of modeling. Um, this is the kind of content we can have and the kind of topics that we can cover and the kinds of voices that we can give a platform to. Yeah, absolutely. I've even had them come to me for my sources. And I'm like, right. sure, great. Right. Because you have a bigger megaphone. So you can right. give the them that platform. And, yeah. And so that's kind of part of the goal. Um, so we're, we're just at, about out of time. Um, how can people find the Women's Media Center online? Womensmediacenter.com. Great. And do people, are, do people join? Are they members or... Is your content free, or how does it work? Content is free. Um, there are several uh, content channels on the website, so you can go in there and see. There's a um, there's a young feminist section called the F bomb. I love um, that. There's features, um, uh, but yeah, it's free. It's not a membership organization, but you can contribute. Okay, great, <laughs> wonderful. So I always finish this radio show with asking my guests, "What is your feminist future?" That is also such a great question. And I no longer think that our work is ever going to be done. Um, But I think it is is good to have a vision of what what we would like to see. And I think at this point, I think it's just the idea that people of all genders can live their lives with relative autonomy and without without any constraints that come out of preconceived ideas about gender. Mm-hmm. Gender mm-hmm. can be mm-hmm. just such a prison for people because of the expectations that are attached to particular genders. If we just 
work to remove some of those expectations and barriers and just live freely as whatever individual we are. It reminds me of Mrs. Early series on free to be you and me, mm. <laughs> which by Another the way, those, important. Yeah, those papers are in the archives with all the original like materials. It's fascinating. It's so. fascinating. And it, it, there's still so much for all of us to learn, but there is an event on the 28th and Carrie, one more time, tell us about not only what it is and when it is, but also how we could get access to it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, at Ms. at um, excuse me at Smith College on September twenty eighth. Ms. College. Did I say Ms. College? <laughs> oh my gosh, what a slip! At Smith College on September twenty eighth, we will have a panel discussion at four thirty p.m. in Weinstein Auditorium, and if you sign up in advance, you can get a free book. Um, you just to sign up in advance, go to tinyurl.com backslash 50 years of Ms. And earlier in the afternoon, if you can make it in the Nielsen Library, we're having an Ms. Archives tour, an open house with the, the early papers of Ms. Magazine, which I guarantee they have a full copy of the FBI file on the women's liberation movement. It's fascinating. <laughs> so I hope you can join us. So September 28th, the Archives Tour is at 1.30 in the Nielsen Library classroom. The panel discussion will be in the Weinstein Auditorium at 4.30 and a reception from 6 to 7. Yes, absolutely. And you get a free book, 50 Years of Ms. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank you, Barbara. Carrie. We're Thank going to be you. right back with Hollywood film editor Harry Karamidis right after this. If you don't love her, you better let her go. You'll never fool her. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Testimony in the murder trial of Kara Rintala in Hampshire Superior Court is continuing today, with Trooper David Swan and Detective Lieutenant Robin Whitney taking the stand. Yesterday, jurors heard testimony of numerous 911 calls and arguments between the couple. This is the fourth murder trial for Rintala, who is accused of killing her wife, Anna Marie Cochran Rintala, in their house in Granby in 2010. Two people were injured following a crash in Hadley on Sunday. The accident happened on Mill Valley Road around 4.43. Hadley police responded to a report of two pedestrians that were struck by a vehicle. The driver stayed at the scene until police arrived. The married couple from Chicopee were hit as they were crossing the street from Maple Valley Creamery and taken to Bay State Medical Center for serious injuries. It is believed the driver, a 27-year-old man from Chicopee, was distracted at the time of the crash, according to witnesses. The Greenfield Zoning Board of Appeals has approved a special permit for an indoor marijuana cultivation facility and retail location on Laurel Street. To control odors from the cultivation site, co-owner Richard Ferrara said rooms will have full carbon filtration systems. The Deerfield Planning Board is seeking to update the official zoning map along with some definitions and special permit sections. The proposed changes include adding electric vehicle parking requirements and changing hotels and commercial recreation from by right use to requiring a special permit in the Tourism Overlay District. There will be a public hearing at 6 p.m. on Monday, October 2nd at the Deerfield Municipal Town Offices. 
Partly to mostly sunny today, breezy, a high of 68 to 72. Evening temperatures will be in the 50s and 60s under clear skies tonight, eventually an overnight low of 46 to 52. Sunny tomorrow, probably the brightest day of the week, a high of 72 to 76. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. One of the most important voices in modern Chilean music is coming to UMass. Nano Stern at Falco Auditorium, Monday, October 2nd. It was 50 years ago, the fall of 1973, when a military coup d'etat removed the popular elected president, Salvador Allende, ushering in 17 years of brutal oppression under the right-wing dictator, Augusto Pinochet. Singer, poet, teacher, and activist Victor Jara was tortured and killed, his body tossed in the street. At this appearance at UMass, Nano Stern will perform songs from his latest album, Nano Stern Canta a Victor Jara, plus the North American premiere of We Will Be Singing by September. A documentary on the history and transcendence of Chilean protest music during the socialist government of Allende. Nano Stern will engage the audience in a dialogue about the film and the influence of resistance music. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Chilean singer and political activist Nano Stern. Monday, October 2nd. Balcar Auditorium at UMass Amherst. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. We have a special guest returning for another uh, sort of appearance here at uh, Talk the Talk. And uh, he's, one of my, he's one of my favorite people, to tell you the truth. His name is Harry Karamidis. Harry is most well-known as a Hollywood film editor who retired uh, here to the Hilltowns, to Ashfield, um, probably what, about uh, 20 years ago? years ago? 18 years ago. And uh, you know Harry's work, Back to the Future, and another, I think, 50 or 60 films, and maybe that many documentaries that he worked on. Harry Karamidis, thank you for joining us again. Oh, you're welcome, Buzz and Deville. Good, good to be here again. I enjoy listening to you guys on the radio and also being a little bit pontificating on the radio with you. <laughs> I love pontification. But the, so we all are just fascinated by it. We all love uh, movies and and uh, the whole culture that we look at from afar. But you were right smack in the middle of it. So you were a Hollywood film editor for how many years? Oh, I started back in 1967 at the UCLA Film School, and I worked my way up into Hollywood films in the early 70s. So how many years is that? 50? 40, something like that. I retired a number of years ago, tried going back and forth to Hollywood from Ashfield, but 
Asheville had too many things that I wanted to stay with, and Hollywood had too few things that I wanted to go to. <laughs> so I stayed home and uh, began some things that I think were indicative of our town and a little bit indicative of my career. I helped start the Asheville Film Festival some 18 years ago, and we're now on our 15th annual with a couple of day, couple of years off for COVID. It is uh, an extraordinary event. Uh, anybody in Asheville who has been to at least one of those 15, well, soon to be 15, uh, film fests know that it is, uh, there are very few uh, events that are more feel-good and entertaining and build community, and it doesn't matter what end of this political spectrum you're on, you're, you're going to be equally feeling warm at some places and laughing at other places together. It's a great community tie that binds us together. How'd you come up with this notion? Uh, originally, I was approached by Tamsin Merrill, who was on the Cultural Council, and she called me and said, I heard that you were here from Hollywood, you know about movies and stuff, and I had an idea that maybe we should have some kind of a film festival here in Asheville. How'd you like to come join the Cultural Council and start start that up? I said, oh, okay. I was looking for a way to get involved in the community. So that was my first entrance into the community, and we began planning for the first year of 2006, I guess, was the first one we had. And uh, I think we had 75 or 85 people at that first film festival. It was interesting for us. Um, we worked under the auspices of the Cultural Council for a couple of years, and then we branched out on our own, and we continued to grow ever since. And now we fill town hall. used to be 400, but now we're limited to 300 from fire regulations, but we fill that place every year. Well, I, I remember, I, I don't think I've missed a film festival, and uh, an Ashfield film festival, and I, I remember um, a couple of years where there were like, we had an overflow of 150 or 200 people over in the church across the street. Correct. With separate screenings of the same films at the same time. Exactly. While there were 420 people, because I know, because I set up chairs upstairs in town hall. So we had uh, 650 people there. Yep. And people still years. waiting outside. Yeah. And then the fire chief said, uh, uh, Too no. many people. Yeah. Too small a space. And it was embarrassing to sell out because... You had your friends standing on the steps saying, couldn't I come in? And I said, well, they're not going to let any more folks into this little hall. So we had to turn them away. And that was the reason why we expanded to the church with the extended uh, audience of about 150 people. We had to start the show in the town hall, run across, start the film, run across and start the introduction in the church, then run back to the town hall back and forth <laughs> several times. And it was quite fun and quite arduous. It was quite arduous. So let, let's say we all know about Sundance and Cannes and the Toronto Film Festival. Those are all uh, regular feature-length films that are being screened and uh, juried um, to determine who's going to get which award. Here, we have a couple thousand dollars uh, being given out for Correct. how many awards and for what types of films, what length films? Well, the awards night is our Saturday with our short films in which... This year, we've had uh, the largest number of contributors ever, <coughs> and we're going to be showing 23 of those, that large number. We rejected several for reasons like people had duplicates. They submitted uh, two different films, and we chose the one best for our film festival. Some were too long, and some were inappropriate, so we just discarded them. Now we will present 23 films in our 
Saturday evening fest, and we will judge them in different categories. And some of the categories would be documentary, it would be a narrative film, would be animation, and etc. I think we have six categories plus grand prize. And then the overall audience award, which everybody gets to vote for after the screening of the show, we'll take an intermission. Everybody has a ballot in their program, and they get to vote for their favorite. So judges aren't the only people who choose a film in the film fest. And every year I get to count those ballots. It's really, I'm one of the ballot counters. You it's are really the ballot fun. counter par excellence. Everybody <laughs> does that. So how long can the films be? There, the films are limited to five minutes or less. Uh, the film fest is dedicated to Cecil B. DeMille, who was born in Asheville. We have a plaque on the building in which he was born. And it's a short film festival because he only stayed there three days. He doesn't actually even acknowledge in any of his biographies that he was born in Asheville. But we know that's true. And we actually have somebody in town whose grandfather was the doctor who delivered Cecil B. DeMille. So that's pretty interesting for us, and uh, we're kind of proud of the fact that he was born there. So these are f- five-minute films, and that, and there's going to be 23 of them. That's on Saturday night. They will be um, judged. So uh, what time is that going to start on Saturday night before we turn to Friday night? Well, Saturday night show begins at, uh, well, the festivities begin in 5.30 with our, our town band playing on the steps of the town hall, which is the location for our short film festival. And they will be playing a lot of uh, film-related music. And at the same time, we're going to have what we call a selfie booth set up between the fire station and the town hall with the backdrop to be used for people to come in and take a picture of themselves, a selfie of themselves with Baby Cecil. We have somebody coming in dressed as our Baby Cecil mascot, all painted in gold with a little gold diaper. And you will be able to come in and have your selfie taken with Baby Cecil. We have some top hats and some boas and some sunglasses, which are some of the things that uh, adorn our Baby Cecil statue. And you'll be able to take those pictures home as a souvenir. Then after the uh, band is finished playing, we'll open our doors at 7 o'clock, I mean 6.30, and at 7 o'clock the films begin to roll, and we will show the films all the way through, and then we'll have intermission, where we then count the ballots and people will be able to have a few snacks downstairs in the town hall. Um, we're looking forward to this whole situation as being one of our most fun years that we're very excited about the, ex- the films we have to exhibit. And uh, I think the audience will really like what we have. And everything I've heard from everyone on the committee, the people that jury these films, that, that it is a stellar year. It's really interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. So what about tickets? Uh, how much does it cost, and how do people get tickets for Saturday's, uh, this Saturday's uh, Ashfield Film Fest? This Saturday's Film Fest is, tickets are $5. They can be purchased online on brown paper tickets, which is also accessible to, you can access brown paper tickets through our ashfieldfilmfest.org website, and they're available also at our hardware store in town. Now, on Friday and night... And they're $5. And, and they're said, only $5. It's, it, it, it's such a bargain. <laughs> Divide uh, uh, $5 by 23 films, and you'll see how much you're paying. It's pennies mm-hmm. per film. And there are, it really, it's an extraordinary event. Because we'll, t- we'll continue talking about it. But I wanted to ask you, Harry Karamidis, um, about Friday night. It's uh, two special films that are going to be screened on Friday night. Yeah, Friday night, we've, over the last uh, several years, have developed what we call the feature film night, where we present things that have to do uh, a longer length, longer lengths than our five-minute films and things that are connected with people in 
the hill towns in nearby to Ashfield and Ashfield itself. We've had uh, many feature films with Ashfielders participating in being editors or uh, directors or producers of them over the years. And this year we have two short films instead of a feature film. First short film is called Alice at Home with Alice Parker. And it's a film about a woman named Alice Parker who lives in Charlemagne, is it, Buzz? I think it was Plainfield, Plain, isn't it? No, she lives in some one of those hill towns. I anyway, know. I think she's from Plainfield. Yeah, yeah okay. she's from Plainfield. And then she's going to be 98 in, in, in the next couple of months. And she is a renowned choral director, composer, and uh, leads things all over the world, is well, world-renowned. And she's going to come and be there while we show the film about her. And then she's going to lead us in a sing at the end of her, her short film, which is something that she loves to do. People come from all over the United States to in, participate in her sings that she has conducted over. She conducts two of them. One is in, in, the, in the church in Charlemont, which the name of the church is escaping me now, and Saint, one in St. John Divine in New York City. So she's quite the thing for choral people and choral directions. She is considered a, a local treasure. In fact, she is a national treasure. And that's not the only film uh, for a, a national treasure that we're going to be screening on Friday night. second film is called uh, Ruth Stone's Vast Library of the Female Mind. It's about Ruth Stone, a, a renowned poet who is uh, she's not from Ashfield, but she's, she has connections to people in Ashfield, uh, in particular Jan Freeman, who uh, got her got to read poetry with Ruth Stone at one time, I believe, and maybe in our town at the, at the Episcopal Church. Uh, and then she's uh, also going to be joined. Dran Freeman is going to be on a panel after we screen this film about Ruth Stone and discuss the film and poetry along with two other panelists, Abbott Cutler, who is a published poet and a local man, and Amy Dransky, who's author of several award-winning books, is going to participate in the panel, which is going to be moderated by Mr. Buzz. <laughs> Mr. Buzz, who has the honor of, uh, I will be moderating, and um, there will be a Q&A to those, those incredible panelists, uh, really accomplished panelists, um, Jan Freeman, Abbott Cutler, and Amy Dryansky. And uh, right at, we will watch the films. Um, we will watch Alice at Home with Alice Parker, um, which is, what, about an hour long? No, it's not that long. I, I don't know the exact length, but I don't think it's an hour. Neither one is an hour long. Right, and and uh, then then we will do our sing with Alice at age ninety eight, leading us in a sing. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And right after that, we will then screen Ruth Stone's vast library of the female mind, and we'll talk poetry with that panelist. With and those those, those tickets are also available on brown paper tickets, and at the our local hardware store, and those are also five dollars. It's an incredible night, and if you've never been to the Asheville Film Festival, I really do encourage you to come. We are speaking with Hollywood himself, Harry Karamidis. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. 
It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers. Exercise classes to blow off steam. Even Reiki, it's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with longtime Hollywood and accomplished and award-winning Film editor um, Harry Karamidis. Harry Karamidis, you are a member of the Academy of Motion Pictures, uh, arts and I always forget the name, arts and whatever it is, but you are a member of that. Yeah, right Academy now, the Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And Sciences, thank you. Um, and uh, there has been the Writers Guild of America, West and East, of both been on strike. The actors. Um, union has now joined that strike maybe about three weeks ago. Correct. Um, you were part of that scene for those many decades, and I understand you're not speaking formally on behalf of any association. You just, I just would like to know your visceral response to the claims of the Writers Guild and the actors' support for those writers. Sure. Yeah, my, my feelings are pretty strong union. I was, as a youngster, I was a member of the UAW, which is on strike now. Uh, and also, I became a member of the IATSE, International Alliance of Television and Stage Employees, which is the umbrella for all the below-the-line workers in the industry. And uh, they were—they are not on strike, but they are in solidarity with the actors and the writers who are—they're helping on picket lines on weekends and things when they're not working. It does affect, I'll say, us because I was one of them. Because when there's no writers, there's no shows. When there's no shows, there's no work. And there are plenty of people in Hollywood and England uh, who are completely losing their, their livelihood now because of the strike. And they're willing to do this because it's very important. The, I think one of the major things is the companies are interested in using AI for what do we know about what AI Artificial, artificial intelligence. Yeah, for what that is, a lot of people don't 
including me, don't understand it completely. But it's, it's a way that the companies are hoping to use to replace workers, actors, and writers in a certain way. They would love, with AI, you can take facsimiles of people's voices and faces, and you can create uh, new things with them. I uh, don't know how, but they do it. And also with the writers, the idea is that they want to eliminate a certain number of writers by having AI just create scenarios and then only have the writers uh, correct them a little bit after they've written out the whole thing. So they're working towards, their, some of their proposals were to limit writers' rooms from eight people down to four and uh, have the, you know, just have them do just only minor tweaks to what the AI would do. I don't really completely understand it. And the company has been a little bit obdurate, obdurate is that the word? It's a good word. About uh, negotiations. They, they had a big deal a few weeks ago about they were going to have a big meeting and everybody was going to come together. And their meeting, they said, they said, what's your new offer? They said, no new offer. That's what we said before. That's it. There's no more. And they, they left the meeting without, as far as I understand, without doing any kind of negotiation and things. Even They didn't even look at the proposal or consider the proposal that had been brought forth by the unions. Bill, as, a, as an attorney, you've been involved in a lot of labor negotiations. And um, so what do you do when, you, when one side just says, yeah, we're willing to sit down and here's exactly the same thing we've said for months? Well, there's a claim. There's an ineffective claim, but there's a claim of failure to bargain in good faith. But the remedy for a unfair labor practice, for a failure to bargain in good faith, is you go through months and months of hearings and pleadings and filings and arguments, and then if you win, you get an order for them, the other side, to bargain in good faith. So it, there, there is no real teeth to the labor law that requires uh, the other side management to come to the table in good faith, although, though, of course, they're there in good faith. And the labor law is that no one needs to make any concession. So... It's kind of a toothless standard, right. to be honest. Harry, I'd like to ask you a question. Right ahead. You're a longtime union member and supporter and fighter for uh, rights of working people with Yahtzee and so on. I'd like to know if you see a similarity or if there are lessons to be learned from the fact that the UAW is now on strike against GM, Chrysler, and Stellantis, and the uh, Hollywood producers and writers and are also on strike any thoughts about the commonality there? Uh, yeah, I think there is a commonality in, in terms of uh, big business of any kind uh, trying to impose their will, their need to make more money, their need to uh, just pay more dividends maybe uh, to, the, to the corporation's stockholders. Yeah. And uh, they're just – they're uh, – I don't, I don't know that they're any more interested in the workers than they are in just in lining their own shareholders' pockets. And I think that's best based on keeping, keeping the power that you're in of you being the boss. And if you're not the rewarding stockholders and things, they remove you. And if you're removed, oh boy, there goes your perks, your Mercedes and your big houses and all those vacation things. Hooray for Hollywood, huh? Hooray for Hollywood. So I, I, we are, just because we're short on time, I want to make sure that we, one more time, plug. Um, you can go to ashfieldfilmfest.org and find out this information. But one more time, Harry, tell us how people can get tickets for Friday the 22nd or... Friday the 22nd, the two movies are uh, Alice at Home with Alice Parker and uh, 
Ruth Stone's Vast Library of the Female Mind. Those are both $5. They are available on brown paper tickets and at the Asheville Hardware Store. And perhaps there will be some tickets left at the door. You will be able to do the same thing for the Saturday night short films. They will be available brown paper tickets and at the door and hardware store. I hope to see everybody there. I'll be moderating Friday night. Thank you so much for joining us on Talk the Talk. And like Harry Karamidis, walk the walk. Thank you very much, this Buzz. This is Bill. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Power to the people. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. The great tradition of the Old Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival returns September 23rd and 24th. Come brighten your home or wardrobe. Choose from affordable works by over 100 artisans in the beautiful village of Old Deerfield. But don't just take my word for it. Get the details at deerfield-craft.org. Come celebrate a bright new fall season. Admission $5, children 12 and under free. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD.